Okay, turn to 2 Kings 21. 2 Kings 21. We've been studying the life of Hezekiah. He's truly been a shining star out of all the kings we've seen, so many kings in Judah and definitely in the kings of Israel. He's been a, uh, a different guy, a guy who's committed to God and his word, his word, his work. I can't say the same for his father, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Ahaz was, was a total spiritual dropout. I mean, he did everything wrong. He was an idolater. He was a blasphemer. He was ungodly. Uh, he did everything he could to destroy the temple of God, to, to ruin the worship of God, all of it. Ahaz's son comes along, Hezekiah. He rebuilds all that his father had destroyed. And uh, he's the man of faith. We saw that, kind of the motto verse for his life is 2 Kings 18.5. As we said, quoted that verse many times um, about Hezekiah. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. A man of faith, no doubt. Now, he was not perfect. He had some serious problems with pride at one point, but he did humble himself before God. He did get that right. Um, and he put his faith in the Lord. And that was the, the theme of his life, his trust in God. There is one problem, however, and that is Hezekiah is not going to live forever. 2 Kings 21, we get to meet the son of Hezekiah, the son of Hezekiah, Manasseh. And he is a real piece of work. Trust me when I say that. I'm going to outline this uh, message under four points. First of all, the rejection of truth. The rejection of truth. Look at 2 Kings 21, the first nine verses. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem I will put my name. For he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his son pass through the fire. He practiced witchcraft. Used divination. He dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wonder anymore from the land which I gave their fathers, if only they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them. And according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded them, but they did not listen. And Manasseh seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the sons of Israel. Now Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, is no more than a boy when he becomes king. He's 12 years old. Can you imagine that? Have a, think about someone who's 12 years old, so near that age, they're now the king, although there's a qualifier here I'll mention to you. In all likelihood, he's not alone at this time. He's for the chronology of King Hezekiah to work out, in all likelihood, there was a, he reigned with his son for about 10 years, from the age of 12 to 22, called a co-regency, and many scholars believe that is exactly what happened. And so the father and son reigned together until he was about 22 years of age. That was helpful to Manasseh, no doubt, I guess. 
It's not unusual in the Old Testament for co-regencies to take place, by the way. That it happens. You'll see that periodically. But when Hezekiah died, all pretense of serving the Lord from Manasseh vanished and went by the wayside. He shows his true colors. You're, you see that right away. He becomes an evil man. He's intent on evil. He can't seem to get enough of evil. He thrives on it. He, he lives for it. Uh, he sells himself out to the idea of evil. You name it, he does it. He does, he does it all, all evil. Now, his offenses that are listed in 2 Kings 21 can be listed under seven basic headings. Number one, he worshipped idols in the same way as the nations did, that Israel had expelled from the promised land. Look at verse 2. He did evil inside the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had dispossessed. So he followed their pattern. Secondly, he rebuilt the high places. That's in verse 3. Uh, he rebuilt the high places. Thirdly, he reintroduced the worship of Baal and Asherah. Remember, that had been obliterated, basically. He's now reintroducing this in verse 3. Fourthly, he worships the host of heaven. He worships the sun and stars and the moon. Who knows what he worshiped? But the, the, uh, the, the heavenly bodies and the celestial bodies and so on. That's in verse 5. Number 5, he sets up idol worship in the temple itself. Look at verse 4, for example. He built altars in the house of the Lord. Number six, he sacrifices his child to idolatry. His own child sacrifices to idolatry. Verse six, he made his son pass through the fire. We've seen that before. And in Second uh, Chronicles 33, 6, the parallel to this passage, it says he made his sons, plural, pass through the fire. More than one. This may have been the oldest son here, I don't know. Second Kings 21, more than one son. Can you imagine that? Uh, look especially at verse seven. Uh, verse 6, by the way, number 7, he practices the occult. Verse 6, practices the occult, the witchcraft, divination, and so on. Look at verse 7, though. He set the carved image of Asherah. That's that female deity of fertility goddess. We've talked about We've seen it time and again. He, he makes this carved image of the Asherah and sets it in the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said, hey, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I'm going to put my name forever. The house of the Lord is reserved for the worship of the Lord only. That's it. The Lord put his name there. His name entails all that he is. And uh, he wants his glory to, be, to shine there. The temple is sacred. Yet Manasseh has no problem. And really what he's doing is taking the name, the name of God in vain here. He's, just, he's, he's, he's dragging it through the mud. Blasphemy. Outright blasphemy. Verse 7. I, when, I, when I read verse 7, I thought of... Antiochus Epiphanes, who's yet to come, 2nd century B.C., who will set up a pig who's trying to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem, sets up a pig to altar, uh, on the altar in the temple of Jerusalem and tries to desecrate it. Manasseh and Antiochus have that kind of mentality together. They have that in common. There's no fear of God before the eyes of either one of them. And so you have these seven basic offenses. You could call them the seven deadly sins of Manasseh. This guy is the very definition of total depravity. I mean, he seems to have this desire to leave a legacy of evil. And most people want to leave, leave, leave a legacy behind them that's, you know, honorable. Not Manasseh. Seems to have a desire to leave a legacy of evil behind him. He chooses his role models very poorly. You know, and you look through those verses we just read, you see who he follows after. He follows after the pattern of pagan nations in verse 2. Follows the abominations of the nations that God had cast out. 
He does what Jeroboam the first had done in setting up high places. Remember Jeroboam the first, the guy that influenced idolatry for years to come. He follows after him. He follows in the path of Ahab, the evil Ahab, by reestablishing Baal worship. He imitates his grandfather Ahab. Dear grandfather Ahaz, he imitates him in practicing child sacrifice. If it was up to dear grandfather Ahaz, there would probably be no children, no grandchildren either. His involvement in witchcraft reminds us, reminds us of another poor example. That would be King Saul, right, who, who consulted the witch of Endor. These are the worst of role models. He himself becomes a role model for evil. Look at verse 9. They didn't listen. Manasseh seduced the people to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. He seduces his own people to do evil. The word means he leads them astray, causes them to wander from the path that God wants them to be on. Verse 11 says he does more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him. Verse 11, because Manasseh, king of Israel, Judah, had done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites who did, more than the Amorites did who were before him. Uh, wicked man. Uh, the Amorites, the term Amorites refers to the original inhabitants of Canaan, the ones that God was going to throw out. By the way, listen to what Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 12 says about those people. Deuteronomy 18, 9 when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations, those Amorites. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. Is that being violated here? One who uses divination. Don't have that either. Or who practices witchcraft or interprets omens or a sorcerer or casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist. One who calls up the dead. Don't do those things that these Amorites did for... Whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. Why do you think the Lord drove out those people? It's because of their evil, because of their wickedness. Now we find in comparison to these pagans, Manasseh, who's supposed to be, who's a covenant in the covenant of God in Israel, supposed to be a follower of Yahweh, he's surpassing them in evil. He's doing even worse than they did. Now that takes some doing. Just to outdo the pagans, and yet he manages to do that. You know, Paul in the New Testament refers to himself as, as the chief of sinners, foremost of sinners. I really believe Manasseh would love to hold that title in the Old Testament. He wants to be the chief of sinners there. Now, speaking of role models, the one guy Manasseh re did not follow, refused to follow, should have rightfully followed, should have rightfully patterned himself after, was his own father, Hezekiah. Now, wouldn't that have made sense? He's the best role model of them all at this time. And, he, and, you know, I'm sure he had heard, I knew he, I know he's heard about the ways of his father, Hezekiah, how he served the Lord. He was probably, no doubt, directly taught by him. I'm sure he was. Uh, by the age of 12, I know he's been taught something about the Lord, knowing Hezekiah. And uh, it's, since it's, un, it's, it's very likely that uh, Hezekiah was co-regent with Manasseh for about 10 more years, how could he have failed to benefit from the godly example of Hezekiah? How is that possible? Just no excuse at all here. You remember I talked about when Hezekiah had his sickness and he recovered from it, and then he wrote a letter. Isaiah 38 records a letter after his sickness, after his recovery, probably after he humbled himself before God. And he talks about his sickness in that letter. And uh, he says in Isaiah 38, 19, he says this, It is the living who give thanks to you as I do today. I'm alive, you rescued me from my sickness, 
I'm thankful for that. He's thanking God for his recovery. But then he says this, Isaiah 38, 19, very interesting verse. He says, a, a father <coughs> tells his sons about your faithfulness. A father tells his sons about God's faithfulness. It's, you know, it's just as if he was saying, in light of the fact that he'd been sick, I'm a blessed man. I was sick. Uh, God's been good to me and restoring, restoring me to health. I want to make sure my children know about this. I want them to know that God's been faithful to me. That's what I should, you know, father tells his sons about your faithfulness. That's what it says. To Hezekiah, that's just something fathers do. Fathers should be doing that. They relate to their children how that God has been good to them. So they'll be encouraged to follow the Lord as well. That is something taught throughout the scripture as well. Old Testament, New Testament says the same type thing. For example, look at Psalm 78. Just here's one example. I just wanted to read this to you. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Just to show you an example of this, Psalm 78, 1. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my, of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done for he established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God. That's why you do this. You tell your children. So they'll put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers in the past who have sinned in Israel, a stubborn and a rebellious generation. You remember the generation that went into the wilderness? A generation that did not prepare its heart and whose heart, whose spirit was not faithful to God? Let me ask you fathers a question tonight. And you say, well, I'm not a future fathers, if not fathers now. Do you tell your children about God's faithfulness? Is this something you do? Or will you do, you plan on doing as they get older? Do you tell your children about God's faith? You know, you have a, fathers have a heavy responsibility on their shoulders. Heavy responsibility from God. To them it is given first and foremost to be the spiritual leaders in their family. To lead their wives and their children in the things of God. That is laid upon you. No matter how you say, well, I've failed in the past. Well, men, it doesn't matter how, no matter how much we've failed in the past. Time to get started again. And get a renewed effort again. And take the lead. And of all the responsibilities that fathers have, we must not fail in this one. Whatever else we fail in, we must not fail in this one. We must make it a priority to sit down with our children and say, Children, God has been faithful to your mother and your father. The Lord has done great things for us where we are glad. He's great as the Lord and greatly to be praised. The hymn is true that says, Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. This is what we need to do. Tell, tell them that Christ has been good. Christ died. Give them the gospel. And, and, and tell them that they can trust them too. And not only tell them, but live it before them. That's our responsibility. Great responsibility. And this, men, we must not fail. Now, knowing that this is the mentality of Hezekiah, and knowing his character in general, we've talked about his character, knowing his reputation for trusting God, knowing all these things, I believe that, that he did lead Manasseh to follow the Lord. I believe he taught him to. And Manasseh must have known. There's no way he could not have known. Everybody knew. Hezekiah was an open book to the whole nation of Judah. Everybody knew what was happening here. 
they all knew of his service to God. Manasseh had to have known that his father tore, tore down all the high places of idolatry. He had to have known this information. He had to have known his father had great respect for God's word. He had to have known that Hezekiah reinstituted temple worship. He uh, reinstituted the Passover. He encouraged the Levites. All these things he did to restore temple worship. Uh, how could he not have known how during the Assyrian threat that, that his dad went to the prophet Isaiah and prayed and asked him to pray for the Lord to the Lord for deliverance as well as he prayed himself? He had to have known this. He certainly must have known that God was faithful to deliver Jerusalem. Remember how God wiped out 185,000 Assyrians? How did he not know this information? Everybody knew it. The whole world knew it. He delivered them from the greatest war machine of that time, Assyria. Amazing. He had to have known that the Lord healed his father from his uh, near-death experience, the illness that he had, after he prayed. He must have known how the Lord withheld his wrath from Judah after his father humbled himself because of his pride. And yet, in spite of all the faithfulness that God has shown to him, and, 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 and that his father had told him about, family members, probably others had told him about, he still rebels against his father's God. Amazing. He sets about to reverse every sp single spiritual accomplishment his father had, had uh, started again after his own father had failed. He tore down every spiritual value Hezekiah held, held dear, and he caused the people of Judah to do the same thing. Amazing. You know, when I think of Manasseh, I think he's got more in common with the Assyrians than his own father. Remember the Rabshakeh, the, the representative of Assyria who came out and said, you know, who do you guys think you are trusting in God? Remember the one quote he made? He told the people of Jerusalem, this representative of Assyria, he said, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, nor let him make you trust in the Lord. It seems to me that Manasseh was more willing to follow his advice than his own father's. You know, Judah had a faithful ruler in Hezekiah, great ruler. Now they have an evil ruler in Manasseh. Same family, different outcome. So what happened? What happened when Hezekiah passed the baton to Manasseh and said, you're going to rule the country now? How do we go from a righteous king who does his best to establish the ways of God in the, in the, in the minds of the people to an unrighteous son who does his best to undo everything his father did how is it that the son rejected everything his father held to so dearly? Well, I've got a couple ideas about that. Number one, God, grace is not inherited. Grace is not inherited. You know, God extended his grace, obviously, to Hezekiah. There's no doubt about it. As you read about his life, you can see the grace of God working him. You see <coughs> prophets speaking to him, Isaiah in particular. Can you imagine having the prophet Isaiah coming to you all the time? I mean, <laughs> uh, he had such, such, so many great things happen in his life in the way of the grace of God. God extended his grace to Hezekiah, but he must also extend his grace to Manasseh. Grace is not inherited. You can't inherit it from your father. It doesn't happen. You know, you, your parents can be the greatest Christians in the world. It doesn't mean you're going to be saved. God has to work in your heart. Hezekiah can teach his son to serve God. He cannot save his son, though. He can't do that. You know, Acts 16... Uh, it says that Lydia was listening to the gospel spoken by Paul, and the Lord opened her heart to the things spoken by Paul, and she was saved. And if Manasseh is going to be saved, guess what? The Lord's got to happen to open his heart as well to the things of the, of the Word of God. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you're saved through faith, right? Not, that not of yourself, it's what? It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
That same chapter teaches that we are dead in transgressions and sins. The only one that can make us alive is Christ. And he has to work in our heart and give us grace. Hezekiah experienced the saving grace of God. Manasseh must also experience it for himself. Just as you and I must experience it for ourselves. We can't lean on someone else's salvation. And so grace is not inherited. Secondly, we are responsible for the light we receive. <clears throat> We're responsible for what light that we receive. Manasseh had received an abundance of spiritual light. He had, he had been exposed to such tremendous truth. You know, he's a recipient of God's faithfulness by example, by teaching. Um, but he's, he's not ignorant. He's not ignorant of the truth. He is, he's without excuse, as Romans 1 would say. And if anybody was ever given the opportunity to turn to God and trust him, it's Manasseh from his, his father and who knows all the influences. Isaiah the prophet was there. You know, he, he deliberately, <clears throat> Manasseh deliberately and persistently rejects, outright, outright rejects God. He makes the, the conscientious decision to do so. That's what he does. He forsakes the Lord. He despises his word. He goes his own way. It's his fault. It's on him. He sinned against the light that he had, the very light that he had been given. Scripture says, to, much, to whom much is given, much shall be required. And so Manasseh has no one to blame but himself. You know, if the Lord has blessed you by allowing you to hear his word, allowing you to have his word, allowing you to hear the gospel and to be part, to partake of a Christian family, or for, for that matter, a Christian or not, if he's allowed you to do this, I tell you what, you better act on the light you've received. You better act on the light you receive from the, from the word. We're responsible for him to be not only hearers of the word, but doers also. That's on us. We have to respond to the light we receive. And if we don't do that, that's on us. And by the way, if you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord and you've been exposed to the gospel truth, you better be very careful what you do with that truth. Don't be like Manasseh. Don't reject the, don't reject the truth. Don't take the grace of God for granted. All right, so that's the rejection of truth. Secondly, the wrath to come. The wrath to come. That's in verses 10 to 16. Now, Hezekiah had listened to the prophets, especially the prophet Isaiah. He had listened to him, and he had consulted him, he had sought, it, sought him out. Uh, uh, on the other hand, Manasseh wants nothing to do with the prophets at all. 2 Chronicles 33 makes that clear. But the Lord will speak through them anyway. God always gives his word out. Whether anybody wants to hear it or not, whether anybody cares or not, God's going to get his word out. And here's his word in, in these verses, and the, word, and the message is very plain in these verses. We'll read them in a minute. Here's the message. Jerusalem is going to fall. Judah is going to fall. They're going to undergo the judgment of God. It's going to happen. <clears throat> and four vivid descriptions are used to speak of the downfall of Judah. Number one, there's, there's this phrase, tinkling ears. Tingling ears, rather. Tinkling ears. Tingling ears. Look at verse 10. That's the first descriptive phrase. Now the Lord spoke through his servants the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly, more than all the Amorites who were before him, and he's also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, <clears throat> thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. The Lord's going to bring calamity upon Jerusalem. That word calamity is translated that way, so we'll understand it better, but it's really literally the word evil. <clears throat> Same basic words translated wicked, or wickedly in verse 11. It's kind of like the Lord is saying, you know, since you've wrought all this moral evil upon the land, I'm going to bring destructive evil upon you. You're going to reap what you've sown. And so 
he's going to bring calamity. It's going to be so great, such a great calamity that people's ears are going to tingle. Kind of like saying, if I'm scared, I might say, my knees are knocking, I was so scared. And that's what he's saying here. The judgment upon Judah is going to strike, literally strike terror in the hearts of people when they hear about this. And the news that they hear is not going to be for the squeamish of heart or even those who are not so easily frightened. It's going to be a horror show as Jerusalem is destroyed before the eyes of the Jews. There's a second descriptive phrase. It's likened unto a plumb line. Look at verse 13. I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. Plumb line is uh, determined whether it is used to determine whether a wall is straight, level or not. The Lord had already assessed or measured Samaria. That's the northern kingdom, Samaria. He had already assessed them by his standard of holiness. This, the plumb line is the standard of God's holiness. And uh, they had failed that test. He had all, already assessed the house of e, uh, King Ahab. And they didn't, he didn't meet up to God's standard of holiness either. He's going to use the same standard to measure Ju Judah. And guess what? They're not level either. <laughs> They're crooked. They are totally unacceptable to his standard. There's a third descriptive phrase, and that is the wiped dish. The wiped, W-I-P-E-D, dish. Verse 13, the end of it. I'm going to wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. Wiping it and turning it upside down. You know, when you eat, you have food crumbs left on the plate, right? And so, after, after the meal, you clean it, right? Unless you're a bachelor, maybe, you don't necessarily clean No, I'm not saying all bachelors don't clean it. But you know how this goes, right? Uh, in this case, the dish is thoroughly cleaned to the point of spotless, so clean as it has it become, and then it's flipped over to be used no more. And what he's saying is, He's indicating the totality of judgment. Judgment's going to be so total on Judah. I'm going to thoroughly purge Judah with judgment. It's going to be horrible. That's the third descriptive phrase. And then finally, abandonment in verses 14 and 15. I'm going to abandon the remnant of, remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. And they will become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and they have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt even to this day. This is the greatest part of the punishment. Imagine God abandoning you. Imagine him. Imagine you don't have the Lord to turn to in your hour of need or when you want to praise him or when you want to thank him or when you want to turn to him. He's not there to do that. What a horrible thought. Most, the horrible, most horrible thoughts. You know, the Son of God experienced that, didn't he? On the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Christ experienced the full brunt of the wrath of God upon him as he suffered for the sins. You know, he never even sinned, and yet he experienced the, the Father abandoning him on the cross. Now, fortunately, for those of us who know him, we have that great promise in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But the people then, because of their evil, because of their wickedness that had been building, they would know one day the abandonment of God as he turned from them in judgment and handed them over to their enemies. And if you're wondering if this predicted wrath to come is only the fall of one man in Manasseh, that's not the case. Verse 15 tells us this storm has been brewing ever since the Exodus. They've been sinning against God ever since the Exodus. The whole nation has been relentless, relentless in their rebellion against God. All these years, Manasseh is simply the last straw Judgment's now coming. It's like a runaway freight train. It's not going to stop. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Look at verse 16. Moreover, 
almost as if this is an afterthought. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until, until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. <clears throat> Beside his sin, which, which, with which he had made Judah sin and doing evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, Manasseh is such a bad guy. It's almost as if the author keeps adding, oh yeah, by the way, he did this too. Oh, and he kept, and he did, I forgot to tell you, he did this too. Even after the judgment is announced, the author says, oh, there's another transgression he's guilty of. He's a murderer. He's killed people all over Jerusalem. He's shed innocent blood all over the city of Jerusalem. And it doesn't tell us what he did. But this is in addition to the idolatry, which it was bad enough. Now he's also a murderer. He's under further guilt. Now, what did he do? What does it mean when it says shed innocent blood? Well, one thing we know for sure, he sacrificed his son or sons to the uh, idolatry in the fire. That's shedding innocent blood. And who knows who followed him in this? We know he possibly killed the prophets, killed some prophets. You know, you take a guy like Manasseh, and you're a prophet of God speaking the truth of God, guess what? Your head's probably going to be on the line. It's, it's very possible he killed the prophets. <clears throat> who knows who this guy killed and why he did it? Innocent people. It's even suggested that Manasseh took the prophet Isaiah, some suggest, put him in a hollow log and sawed him in two. Now, where do they get that from? Some commentators get it from Hebrews 11.37, which, said, uh, which talks about people of faith in the Old Testament, and it says they were sawn in two. Some people think, well, Isaiah was included in that. Now, we can't, we can't verify that, that he was a victim of that. But one thing's for sure, uh, Judah's going to face, face, face the wrath of God without a doubt. Thirdly, the surprising conversion. The surprising conversion. Look at 2 Chronicles 33. 2 Chronicles 33. This is a parallel passage to 2 Kings 21. 2 Chronicles 33, 10 to 13. It says there, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people. They paid no attention. They didn't care about the prophets. Therefore, the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them. And they captured Manasseh with hooks. Remember we talked about how Manasseh did that? It was their practice. Their, their captives, they would take them by hooks and drag them, carry them to somewhere like a dog. And they bound him with bronze chains and took him to Babylon when he was in distress, <clears throat> he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Now, this apparently happened later on in life. After all his evil, the Assyrians take another push against Judah and they capture uh, they get this guy Manasseh and they haul him off to Babylon, which was under the control of Assyria at the time, and they leave him there. Now, think about that. Put yourself in his shoes. You know, we've talked about Assyria, right? Last people you want to meet, last people you want to be captured by. That would have been enough distress for anybody, but it's also for distress for Manasseh. He's so distressed, <clears throat> he does the unthinkable. He prays. He actually prays for the first time in his life, probably turns to God in prayer, and he humbles himself. Probably the first time he's done that in his life. Humbles himself for God. That is amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And what's more amazing than that is that the Lord heard his prayer and entreated him and answered his prayer. <clears throat> and what's most amazing of all is that the scripture says, then Manasseh knew 
that the Lord was God. Think about that. This man, a blatant idolater, openly profaning God before everybody in Judah, leading the nation, seducing the nation, a blasphemer of God, a murderer. Now he's one who knows the Lord. That's amazing. It's surprising, if not shocking, that this happened. And I couldn't help but think of one man as I read this, and that was the Apostle Paul and his conversion. Now, what's the key here? Verse 12, he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Humbled himself. That is a fundamental element in conversion. Humbling yourself. We don't talk about that much. But that is fundamental. Will people, will they bow down? Will they acknowledge God? Will they humble themselves for God, humble their pride, and acknowledge his lordship? Will they do that? That's key in conversion. Manasseh did it late in life. Now somebody says, is there, is there any real evidence? Well, look at verses 15 and 16 of 2 Chronicles 33. He removed the, he, in verse 14, he, he rebuilds the walls to kind of protect him from Assyria <laughs> after that experience. Verse 15, he removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, as well as the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. He threw them outside the city. He set up the altar of the Lord and had sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. And he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Now, isn't that remarkable in light of what this guy had been before? You know, you talk about a new creation in Christ. And we can learn something wonderful here. No person is too sinful for God to save. Nobody is too sinful for God to Think of any friend you have right now that you've said, God can't save that guy. He's beyond hope. Or you've thought that maybe. You didn't want to think of it, you did anyway. Nobody is too simple for God to save. And no senior sinner, not senior citizen, no senior sinner, S-I-N-N-E-R, not center, no senior who's been sinning is too old for God to save. Manasseh continued much of his life in evil, and yet God had mercy upon him. God is, God is long-suffering. We see it once again. He desires uh, all to be saved to come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2. Now, distress is a way of causing people to look to the Lord, doesn't it? When people get in distress, then they don't, isn't that when they want people, the church to pray for them? People who never even knew anything about, cared about God at all. It took distress to bring Manasseh to his knees and confess that Yahweh is the Lord. And, I, and I've thought, and I've prayed this way many times now, when lost people are in distress and they're asking for help, I think the best thing for us to do is to pray that God will use that distress to point them to Christ. He can use that. He can use distress in the saving of a soul. It's a surprising conversion. Finally, the effects of evil. The effects of evil. Look at chapter 33. We could go to 2 Kings also, but look at 2 Chronicles 33, verse 20. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his own house. And Ammon, his son, became king in his place. Ammon was 22 years old, 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh, his father, had done. And Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father and Manasseh had made, and he served them. Moreover, he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father Manasseh had done, but Ammon multiplied guilt. Finally, his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his own house. But the people of the land killed all the conspirators against King Ammon, and the people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his place. Conversion of Manasseh is not recorded in 2 Kings 21, probably because the idea of 2 Kings is that judgment's coming. Nothing's going to stop it. Judgment's been set in motion. doesn't matter that Manasseh's been converted, it doesn't matter. It's tremendous that he's been converted. We rejoice in his conversion. But the evil effects 
that Manasseh put into motion all those years cannot be undone. You can't undo all that now. Judah's going to face the wrath of God. It's only a matter of time. Now, as for the son of Manasseh, Ammon, he, you can see he follows in his father's footsteps all those years, with one exception. He doesn't humble himself ever. He never turns to God. He himself is murdered by conspirators. You know, it's hard to right the ship once it's set on a course of destruction. Very hard to turn it around. Only the Lord can change the course of a person's life when it's going that direction. In Manasseh's case, you have a bad father and a bad son. Uh, I'm sorry, you have a good father and a bad son. Hezekiah the good father, Manasseh the bad son. But then later on, this son becomes converted. In Ammon's case, you have a bad father, most of the time, who is setting up his son for a course of evil, and Ammon refuses to come to the Lord. So you look at that and you say, well, does it matter what I teach my children, what I do toward my children? It matters greatly what you do toward your children. You know, something else occurred to me in all this, too, as I was thinking through this. It could be that in, addi in addition to the distress brought, brought to Manasseh by the Assyrians, Manasseh, his early influence of his godly father may have come back into his memory. Look at verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 33. It talks about the God of his fathers. It mentions the God of his fathers there. It does, you know, it does matter what parents and grand grandparents feed into the minds of their children and grandchildren. It does matter. The seed you plant, you say, well, what good does it do? I'm, yeah, maybe you've heard about people, well, my son's older now and he's not saved and all these kind of things. Look, it does matter. The seed may not take root until years later even. But you must plant the seed. You must plant the seed. It's vital. And that goes for any believer who has influence over young people at all. Unfortunately, the effects of evil are all too real, though, and the consequences will follow. That is true. The good news is the Lord can conquer any evil heart. It doesn't matter who he is, what the circumstances are, how evil the person is. None of that matters. How hardened his heart is, God can conquer an evil heart. Manasseh is a perfect illustration of that. Always think of that. And that's the very point the Apostle Paul is making in 1 Timothy 1. Turn to 1 Timothy 1. We'll close with this. 1 Timothy 1. Chapter, or chapter 1 and verse 12. He says here, Paul says in his testimony, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this, this reason I found mercy, <clears throat> so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. You know, Paul's driving at something here. He's making a point. He's, he's presenting an argument. He says God used him as an example for the whole world to see. God used him as an example. Since God exercises perfect patience and putting up with Paul's foolishness all those years, his, he was long-suffering towards Paul as he blasphemed God and as he persecuted the church and did all these sins. Yet, in time, the Lord saved him in spite of all that. The Lord saved him. And it becomes obvious that the Lord can save anybody if that's the case. If the Lord can save the Apostle Paul, the foremost of sinners, he calls himself, the chief of sinners, <clears throat> then it's certain the Lord can save anybody else. That's his argument here in these verses. We call that amazing grace. 
It's the amazing grace of God. God can save anyone. What more can we say tonight except the words of verse 17? We'll close with this. Look at verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, are, we do worship you tonight and are grateful for your grace in our life, Lord. Without your grace, none of us would be here at all. We know you've worked in our life, outside of which we certainly couldn't save ourselves. We're thankful for that. We pray for those that we know, Lord, that we've talked to, witnessed to, that don't know you, Lord. We know that they're not beyond your saving. Help us never to give up on them. We pray that it would make us more determined to talk to them about the gospel. We pray for our friends and family members, Lord, that people in here have been praying for for years. We pray for their salvation. Uh, we pray you'll have mercy upon those people as well. Help us as we go forth this week, Lord, to serve you in a, in a, way, in a greater way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.